Welcome to The Blind Spot, a podcast where we explore human instinctual drives through the lens of the Enneagram, nonviolent communication, and resonant healing with personal stories from individuals living real human lives. My name is Karen Nance, self-pres, social, sexual blind, three-wing two, with 371 trifix, and ENTP cognitive preferences. I hope you enjoy these stories. Hello, friends. Welcome back to The Blind Spot. And I'd like to start off today by talking about some exciting new offerings that I have. You can now check out at KarenAnceMD.com a whole array of offerings in the healing space that are not just related to me being a medical doctor. And the website is still in evolution. I am trying to get more clarity and to build this out, but I would invite people to come online and express interest in a 30-minute consultation, which is free if you want to talk about your own experience in the sexuality circuit or if you are um, having issues in the sexual instinctual drive. Um, I now have an offering called Healing Your Sexuality Circuit. And I personally have gone to two different conferences for the Society for Sex Therapy and Research, as well as a conference for the American Association of Clinical Sex Educators. I am a longtime devotee of Esther Perel. Um, This has been a real interest area of mine, which is why you are going to see me interviewing some people and talking about sexuality in a more vulnerable way. So if you have your own story and would be willing to share And it can be public or anonymous. I think that bringing stories, even between couples, is going to be really helpful. So I would ask you to reach out to me through my website, KarenAnceMD.com. We could schedule a free 30-minute conversation where we can decide if there are ways that I could support you or if you would also like your story to be heard. So without further ado, let's meet Sarah. I am here today with Sarah McMahill, who I know from my green room offering with Russ Hudson. And I've been having a lot of thoughts about the role of monogamy and polyamory in the instinctual drives. And I've been having some observations and I sort of put out a question to the green room to say, does anybody have any experience or any thoughts with polyamory versus monogamy? And would you be willing to help me unpack some ideas? And Sarah said yes. So I'm really grateful that she was here to talk with me today. Sarah is an Enneagram 6, and her stacking is self-pres, social, sexual, blind. So we share the same stack. And do you have a five wing, Sarah? Yes. Yes. So a six with a five wing. And Sarah is a body worker that does myofascial release therapy. Is that correct? Yes, and just recently, I've been including the strain counter-strain techniques into my sessions. Excellent. You live in Minneapolis, right? Yes. So if we have any listeners in the Minneapolis area who wants hands laid on, I definitely recommend calling Sarah for that, um, or if you're going to travel in the area. Uh, Sarah is also an Enneagram teacher as well as a coach, and she is also a musician, and she has composed music and lyrics for each Enneagram type. So we're going to make sure that we have in the show notes a way for you to access that and hear her beautiful voice and many of the ways that her sexual instinct actually finds expression through her creative drive, which has always been a part of your story, right? Yes. And as a bit of an addition to that, I'm currently writing some music for each of the instincts. 
Oh, that's so fun. That'll be great to hear. So I just have a little question about your typing journey, Sarah. Did you ever wonder if you were any type besides six or did you know you were a six right away? I did not know I was six. I originally thought that I was a two. Mm -hmm. And how did you differentiate? What made you realize, oh, I'm a six, not a two? That would be from my mom, actually, because my mom was the one who told me about the Enneagram. And I started looking into it, and uh, my mom took uh, one of Russ Hudson classes on the psychic structures. And I was in college at the time when she took that. And when she got done with it, she got an insight. And she called me up and says, I need to talk to you. I would like to come visit. And so she came down to visit, and she told me what she was thinking of for as the type six thoughts. And when she was relating some of those, there's that sinking feeling. Oh, yes. This is, this is landing on me. Mm. And what specifically was she pointing out that was like, oh yeah, that's me. You know, to be perfectly honest, I don't remember now because this was about 22 years ago. Okay. And how do you know you're not a nine? Because my mom is a nine. Mm -hmm. And I've seen some of her own behavior. And it's like, you know what? That's just not me. What's her behavior that's not you? Granted, she's done some of her own work on this too, but she used to merge a lot into me. And she was more about trying to have peace between everyone. And sometimes I wanted to shake things up. Okay. And how do you know that she's not a two, that your mom's a nine and not a two? Because we talk about two being like merging love is part of the point two quality. Oh, my mom's done some of her work with this as well. And that's something that she told me. So, but in terms of differentiating between my mom as a nine and some of the twos that I know, my mom's merging was more meddling. I should say. Which sounds more two than nine. Nines don't meddle. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, right? Like we can just shake things up sometimes when we just <laughs> are trying to differentiate. Like when I was talking, I did another typing interview with Darren Yee. And in that one, that was how we were specifically differentiating that he's a nine and not a two, is that when people get stressed, the twos will meddle and the nines withdraw. It's just something to play with. I mean, we never know. You know, many of us mistype. I've thought I've ever type on the wheel until I finally landed on three. And I'm always still open if anybody wants to retype me. But I've been typed by so many professional Enneagram teachers now that I'm feeling pretty solid on three. But I always just open it up because sometimes if the person that's been helping us with our typing journey, like a first degree relative, is telling us, oh, I'm this, but they're actually not seeing themselves clearly. And then they're putting us as a foil against them. That can sometimes breed confusion, which is one of the reasons why it's hard for parents to type their children. On the one hand, we know our kids like really, really well. And on the other hand, especially between mothers and daughters, there's so much projection and enmeshment and all this other stuff that just happens in the mother-daughter relationship but I think it can be a little tricky. And I don't know, does that land with you? Or do you think that 
your mom knows you so well that she couldn't possibly be wrong in her assessment. I think she just knows me very well. Yeah. So a lot of that doubt and a lot of that, the energetic stuff of the six, like that just feels really, really true. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And and I suppose another way that I can really see my mom more as a nine than as a two is that I have seen her uh, when she goes into stress, she comes down to six with me. It's really worried. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, as you were kind of saying that, I was like, yeah, there's an indicator right there. I, I've seen her come down into uh-huh. the worrying part. Interesting. Yeah. And what happens for you when you get stressed? Oh, heavens. It depends on the level of stress. Uh, sometimes for me, I sometimes go into three. What does that look like? Do, do, do. Always mm-hmm. doing. Just okay. can't let go. I, I can't stop because if I stop, I'm going to crash. Mm, yeah. And I just have to keep going. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And I have to admit, I am I I'm willing to admit this in your podcast that there is a time when I was very unhealthy to the point where I was I was self-destructive to mm. myself. Yeah. Did that look like a suicide attempt or just other be- yeah, okay. Mm. And that was coming at about the time when I was questioning my sexuality. Mhm. Yeah. And, and when you were in that really dark place like was it more about questioning your sexuality or were there a whole bunch of other things that were playing in as well? There were a ton of things that were playing into that. It was it was the questioning of my sexuality. It was being told that I would be going to hell if I was a lesbian. It was not having a... I di- didn't recognize my worth. I felt like that I kept screwing things up. And if I kept screwing things up, I could be hurting people and I did not want to hurt anyone. And I just felt like that I just needed to not be here. Yeah, absolutely. So the pain of that, regardless of what point it's coming from, Mm -hmm. was just so overwhelming that not being here felt like an option that would bring you some ease or some peace. And I felt like that it was more than just me being at peace, but also having others be at peace so I wouldn't be hurting them anymore. Absolutely. Yeah. Which I think sounds like any of the attachment types, you know, when we feel like our impact on another is, you know, when threes feel like, oh my God, I'm such a failure. I can't stand the shame of everybody knowing that I'm ruined and X, Y, or Z, they'll often commit, you know, they commit commit suicide. And it's interesting you bring up that for both sixes and nines as attachment types that are very focused on their group and their tribe and pleasing others or not causing harm or ripples, you know, depending upon whether you're coming from the six or the nine stance, if it just feels like who and what I am is so counter to that, which is quote unquote, okay. Of course, the solution might be to take yourself out of the equation or the mix. Yeah. Mm. So I really feel grateful that you shared that because I think it's so important to remember that when we feel like there's something about us that isn't fitting into mainstream structure, 
that that can be so exquisitely painful to the point where we believe we shouldn't exist just because I'm not like everybody else or everybody else that I'm seeing. Yeah. Yeah. And recognizing that so much of the behavior that we see is socialized. So it may or may not be how people are on the inside. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is why sometimes fours will stand out as misfits in some ways, or I'm so different because they are so dialed into their authenticity to like, this is who I am and I will not compromise it. And I'm going to sort of be frustrated with how everybody is receiving me because nobody ever really quite gets me that finding that point four inside of all of us that really helps us to come to peace with who and what I am. Sounds like it's been a huge part of your journey. It has. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. Well, we're going to go ahead and cut now to the part of the interview where Sarah and I dive a little bit deeper into how she discovered her instinctual stack and some thoughts that we have about how monogamy and polyamory are playing into the expression of the instinctual drives, or rather how the instinctual drives play into the expression of polyamory or monogamy. So we'll go ahead and cut to that. So yeah, that totally makes sense. If sex was painful, why would you want to have it? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, along with that is, so um, being a body worker and looking at pictures of myself with my mom, I noticed that as I was looking at myself that, oh my gosh, I was so twisted. Huh. What was it, twisted? What do you mean? It, it, it was my uh, my hips. My hips were twisted and were rotating off to the left. Oh, wow. So, so my whole body was uh, was rotated. My hip was actually rotated inwards and crushing some of my reproductive organs. Oh my goodness. And you were just born that way, huh? That's our best guess. Yeah. But looking at myself is like, oh my gosh, no wonder I was in so much pain. Yeah. Like anatomically, you're just not built for penetration, it sounds like, in of that type. Right. Not Not of that type, no. Yeah. So that's so interesting because when I think about like what we're attracted to and who we choose to be with, there's like the what feels physically pleasant sexually on my body. And also when I'm looking at somebody, what is it that turns me on kind of thing? Like those are, I would say, two different categories in some ways. I mean, for some people, they line up. And for some people, I'm imagining maybe it doesn't. Yeah, that's that's my sense of that, too. Yeah. Like, were you attracted visually to boys when you first started coming into sexual maturity? Or did you remember always being visually more attracted and turned on by women? Or did that come further down the road? Because if you're sexual blind, you might not know. And I really didn't know until, geez, about halfway through college. Mm-hmm. That like, oh, this is just another way of being. When you say I didn't know until halfway through college, I didn't know I had sexual desire or I didn't know that I was attracted to women. I didn't know I was attracted to women. Got it. Okay. And yet you started dating men because there was some shame around being with women or why did you end up with men and ever? Part of it for me was I had a hard time in middle school and high school 
And I honestly thought that I was unattractive and more than just unattractive, but not desirable. Mm-hmm. So when a boy said to me, I like you, I want to date you, was like, really? Okay, I guess I'll try this. <laughs> so, so it was a lot of exploration of what about being with a boy did I like, and then realizing that there's another world out there that could be more pleasing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was an incredible re- uh, revelation for me when I realized that, hey, this feels more natural to me. Mm, yeah. When you grew up, did you have a lot of close female friendships? When I was in elementary school, I did. When we moved from Nebraska to Minnesota uh, in middle of sixth grade, tough time anyway, I pretty much only had one uh, female close friend. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah. From until you went to college. Yeah. Yeah. And then what was it like when you went to college? Did you have friends right away or did it take a while to make friends there? It took a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I eventually started to make some more friends there and just seeing the wide range of beauty that each of my female friends had. And yeah. Yeah. I'm so curious um, in your point six structure, are you familiar with the object relations around point six? Uh, some. Yeah. And have you thought about how that showed up for you at all? And just to review, they say that sixes are kind of wired to have their stuff triggered by like the protective figure, which often is the father, but isn't always the father. And that there's maybe something a little bit scary about that father figure, like some unpredictability or like I'm lacking support. Like I don't feel supported by the protective figure is often what they say about the object relation pattern at point six. Well, the first thing that just popped into my head as you were saying that is, so it wasn't as though that I didn't have the support from my dad, but he did have, he does have a chronic health condition where we've nearly lost him a few different times as I was growing up. Mm. It was the threat of him dying on me. Yeah. 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 That's so interesting. I haven't heard that from a six before. Oftentimes the story is more that like the father figure was scary in some like moving out aggressive kind of way. And that totally makes sense that if we believe that we're born with our enneotype, then it's going to start forming its object relations based off of that figure. And it totally makes sense that if you're sort of wired to have angst or fear be the passion that having that protective figure be near death at different points could absolutely sort of play into that. And it makes a lot of sense, especially as if you're self-preservation dominant, where concerns of health and safety and well-being and my ground, that that was perpetually sort of unstable for you. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting is my mom is a social nine. My dad is a social one. Mm. I have two older brothers. The oldest brother 
is also a self-press six. Okay. My other brother is a self-press five. Uh-huh. Two social body types yeah. produced three self-press head types. Interesting. Yes. Which kind of makes sense around the story of your father's illness, where the basic health of the body was something that was a scary thing for the kids in that family. Yep. And mm. why I focus on the health zone yeah. of the self-preservation. And you have two brothers, you said? Yes, two older brothers. Are they married or are they single? The oldest one is married. He's on his second marriage. Mm-hmm. Has He has three kids. Uh, my other brother... He's technically not married, but he's been living with his girlfriend of 25, 28 years or so. Yeah. What types do you think your brother's partners are? I'm just curious. Any idea? Yes, actually. So the self-pres five brother, uh, his partner, we highly believe that she is a seven and a preserving seven okay my oldest brother his second wife the the one that we like a whole much better than his first but his second wife is a two okay interesting and and she's and she's identified herself that way yeah his first wife we believe that she is a three Mm -hmm. unfortunately an unhealthy three Mm -hmm. a big there were she she has some behavior issues and it's just been she she's provided a lot of roadblocks and she's just unhealthy and what behaviors does she manifest that you're evaluating as unhealthy uh she has canceled birthday parties without my without my niece's uh consent or permission uh, she has uh, committed uh, credit card fraud. Uh, she cheated on my brother, not just once, but multiple times. Lots of deceit. A lot of deceit. Yeah. And sounds like a somewhat assertive or aggressive personality that kind of does what she wants. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and And she's also gone off to McDonald's to get hamburgers when she knew that we were going to be having a family dinner. Mm. so very much fixated on her own agenda. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, okay. So I like to ask these questions just because I find it really interesting in terms of attraction because I do think that there's something around girls in some way forming their attraction based upon their father figure. And boys sometimes forming attraction in some ways based upon the maternal figure and not always, but there's some pattern there. And so there's this part of me that's just wondering that if your dad was often ill, that it would be even another reason to find the female form more attractive because oftentimes when people are sick, that's not necessarily attractive, especially for a self-preservation type that focuses on health and wellness, it might be surprising if you were attracted to somebody that was sort of sickly, chronically in some way. That's an interesting thought. Yeah. I'm just kind of thinking back to some of my previous relationships 
And in a way, I also went big with my wife too, because you know she's uh she has her own food issues, and not necessarily because she's got a, a, any illness surrounding it. It's just she doesn't like fruits or vegetables. Mm, yeah. So does she have any health issues, or is she pretty healthy? Goes back and forth. Yeah. I know that she does have type two diabetes and has some issues with her thyroid. Okay. And really, when I'm thinking about the majority of people who doesn't have some sort of health issue of some kind, I don't have any health issues, and I know a lot of people who don't. Mm hmm. Yeah. So it's interesting. Like, we sometimes we move in worlds. I'm wondering if, with the kind of work you do, if you actually encounter people that have a lot of health issues. There's that. Yeah. 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 And I'm a doctor, so of course I encounter people with health issues. But for me, there's sort of a split between the patients I take care of who have a lot of health issues and the people in my life who don't always have the best habits but are ridiculously healthy and I would say a lot of self-preservation dominant people who have a lot of sturdiness and strength. And that's just sort of the milieu from which I've emerged. Mm -hmm. High on constitution, let me put it that way. <laughs> if you ever played Dungeons and Dragons, you know, there's all those different. Yeah. It seems like my lot is very high on constitution, <laughs> but it's true. We, if we can all just check in and say, Hmm, what is my level of constitution? And how about the people around me? And, you know, it's just an interesting thing to observe. Yeah. And, and then I'm suddenly starting to think about, well, or, or we're talking about levels of health here, and we are putting our own spin on what we consider healthy as well. Absolutely. What do you consider to be healthy? Like why, when you say everybody's got some kind of health problem, what kind of health problems are you thinking of? I am thinking of digestive issues. I'm thinking of blood sugar problems. I'm thinking of how some people are rotated inwards or something like that and just have some aches and pains throughout their body. I'm thinking of, of people who've been into car accidents and have some issues from whatever accident they were in. Yeah. So it just, but like, so for example, I have bunions. Do you consider that a health issue? Like I can't wear heels anymore. Like as long as I wear flats, my feet are fine. So I don't really consider it a health issue. I consider it just I'm getting old and getting bunions because everybody in my family does. Well, I wouldn't necessarily cause it, say that bunions are a health issue, but it can be an indication that there is some compensation going on for something around your pelvis. And I totally believe you because I actually have like my, there is definitely structural stuff going on with my right leg. Like I'm a little duck footed with my right leg. And like, I just, when I do yoga, if I stand with like my feet together, like, like I'm a little knock kneed or there's, there's definitely structurally, I always have this thought like, Hmm, I would love to work with a body worker and just figure out why my skeleton isn't quite right. Like, I know that that's true. I mean, I have had two knee surgeries, but that was related to falling down a hill and tearing my cartilage. But it's like, even though I know I have skeletal abnormalities, they haven't caused me any problems that I am conscious of. Do you know what I mean? That I allow into my awareness, even though, of course, they're there. So like my identity is that I'm healthy and have strong constitution, even though I know that I have skeletal abnormalities. I've I've compensated. 
So when you frame it that way, yes, I would say none of us are completely symmetric and completely normal and completely like put together a hundred percent quote unquote right, whatever that means. Yeah. And everybody's so-called normal is going to be different. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it kind of ties back back into, you know, the whole polyamory and monogamy is like, you know, what what's what's right for one person for how many people they love or not love. Right. Like it's that's their own unique position. Absolutely. Did you ever have a time in your life where you explored polyamory? Yes. Uh-huh. And what was that like? That was a different experience for me because it was it was a relationship with both a woman and a man. Uh-huh. And just trying to figure out for me is like how how can we make this work or will this work for us? Mm-hmm. What were the challenges? Like was somebody jealous in the triangle? And did they have other partners as well? And no. So so this woman and the man were already married. Okay. And they wanted to bring me into the mix. Mm-hmm. And like, sure, we can try this. And mm-hmm. I was still kind of new to my own budding sexuality. So it wasn't necessarily anybody's fault per se. It was more of me trying to figure out what was right for me. Yeah. And were you more interested in that moment in the man or the woman? In the woman. Okay. So this seemed like, and how did you meet them? This was, oh, that's right. That was with um, my second girlfriend. Uh, so my second girlfriend was uh, good friends with them. Actually, are good friends with them. And she introduced us. And we were even considering having, you know, a my girlfriend at the time and this other couple having a relationship. So your girlfriend found them, brought it to you and you said, sure, why not? Let's try it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you already knew you were attracted to women because you had the girlfriend and then it was she who wanted to open up the tableau and invite in this other woman, and a man kind of came along with a package deal, or was she interested in the man? Which one was she more interested in? Uh, well, my girlfriend was bi. Okay. So this so, was a way for her to have both. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it just gave me an opportunity to do some more explorations. So. Yeah. And was that your one experience with polyamory, or have you had others? That was my only experience with it. Yeah. But I do remember my my wife now, before we got married, we just say, well, if somebody right comes along, maybe we can try and figure something out. But as, as we like to put it, we're de facto monogamous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and this is part of what I'm so curious about, because I have a theory that sexual blind people have an easier time with polyamory than sexual dominant people. How does that land on you? Oh, that's a really good theory. What do you like about it? I think it's because we don't know any better. In what way? As in, we just don't, we don't know about that part of ourselves. So it'd be easier to do some exploration when we are willing to explore that part of ourselves. Yeah, I, and I, I agree. Key right there is like we need to be willing to explore it. Mm-hmm. Those who aren't willing to explore it, I think that's when 
we can get into more of the monogamous thinking. Yeah. And the other thought I have, have you heard that? So of course there's attachment types, right? The three, six, and the nine. And then there's the hexad types, which are every other point on the wheel. They're either frustration or rejection. I have another theory that attachment types have an easier time with polyamory than hexad types. Hmm. That is an interesting question. And I'm not, I'm not entirely certain. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to figure out if that holds water in my brain. Let me frame it out a little bit more. Attachment, we all have an we all we all attach. You know, everybody is going to attach to the nurturing figure in some way, shape, or form because that's necessary for survival. And then when that nurturing figure doesn't show up for us the way that we're wanting, we will experience frustration. And if the frustration doesn't get any relief, then ultimately we will reject. So everybody's got attachment, everybody's got frustration, and everybody has rejection. But based on your Enneagram type, you're going to be a little bit more heavy on one of those three flavors than the other. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So attachment types love having attachments. We're pretty porous. We're pretty open. We're more eager and willing to attach with people than the frustration types or the rejection types, because the frustration types are often not liking something about the attachment. Something about the attachment is sort of chronically not right, and hence their manifestation as a frustration type. And the rejection types seem to be wired to become hopeless a little bit more quickly And so they don't have the same capacity for frustration. So they either attach and then they have attachment or they quickly go through frustration and end up rejecting and are like, no, not you, not this, not now. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if you're an attachment type and you enjoy attachments, you may be more likely to also be willing to juggle multiple attachments because you aren't as sensitive to frustration or rejection as a hexad type would be. I'm thinking about the different zones and how that might also play into... So you're back to instincts? I just want to be clear because when we talk about zones, we're talking about instincts, right? Yeah. And what's coming up for you around the zones? When I'm thinking of the sexual dominant type, they are so wired into, is this attachment a yes or a no? And if it's a yes, they're like, give me more, give me more, give me more, give me more, like like the juice. So when you think about that intensity that comes along with the sexual instinctual drive, it's like hard yes. And it's you and all of you and anything else that tries to penetrate this connection Forget about it. Like I'm pushing you out of the zone because this is a one-to-one. This is an intense, this is a chemical attraction that I just feel in my body and they're feeling in their body. And sometimes sexually dominant people have an equal aversive reaction. They kind of get a scent, a whiff of you or a taste of you or 
and exposure to you, and there's also something in their body that tells them this is not good chemistry. Hard no, not this. Okay. So it can sound like the rejection stance, but it has a slightly different flavor because we're specifically talking about things that are going to stimulate either a sexual connection or some kind of creative connection, some kind of new discovery, some kind of exploration that's different from the exploration that happens in the social instinctual drive where it's kind of lighter and we're kind of playing and we're kind of like bouncing things off each other. The sexual instinct sort of challenges and destroys what's there in honor of creating something new. And it's sort of explosive and more intense and more powerful and more emergent. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so for those of us that are self-present, social, sexual, blind, we are going to actually fear that loss of self because there's a loss of control that goes along with that. I lose my stability and I lose my ground. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. We have to remember that these instinctual drives, I do like what Russ is doing with the zones, but I think that the zones sometimes makes it a little more heady, which would make sense that he likes it as a head type. You know, it's kind of logical and orderly and I can see where he's going. But when we're talking about instincts, like these are something that, you know, Gurdjieff talked about the instincts being in the belly center like super instinctual and energetic. And it just like explodes out of the belly center, self pres mm-hmm. social and sexual live in the belly. Mm-hmm. And so which one is going to fire with more consistency, which one are we oriented around is going to become our dominant. And then we have another one that fires well enough. And then we have one that is either blind or some people experience it as more tertiary. It's just like, it's there, I can connect with it. But if my dominant or secondary instincts are threatened, it's the one that gets pushed to the wayside until these first two needs get met. Does that make sense? Hence the gut knowing. Yeah. The gut knowing. It's like my social, my self-pres, and my sexual are all coming from the belly center. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's yeah. like that whole, when we talk about eight, nine, and one, which are instinctual types or gut center types, there's just this knowing. They just move from that belly center. Mm -hmm. So when I think about polyamory, it makes sense that sexual blind people like just kind of don't know. It's like, yeah, I'm attracted to you and I'm also attracted to this. And I'm, yeah, I don't think I like that, but I'm willing to try it. You know, there's a lot more of this sort of, I'm just not sure in terms of sexuality what I want to pair up with. There's not as much of a distinct location. Does that make sense? Yeah. Whereas social is very open. It's like, I can be friends with you and we can be friends with her and sure, invite him in. And oh, now it's a big potluck. Everybody's bringing a dish. We're kind of collaborating. The more the merrier. Like that's social, very different from sexual. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I think that there's something about people who want to expand the space beyond the one-to-one sexual intimate connection that tells us that they're unlikely to be sexual dominant. 
which is a little counterintuitive to how we think about sexuality in our culture, where if we think of somebody who's very sexual, we might be like, oh, they're sexual dominant. Or I've talked to people that know that they're very sexual and they say, oh, I'm clearly sexual dominant because they think about sex a lot. Which isn't always the case. Right. Because if you're self-preservation dominant and are very connected to your body and what feels good, what's pleasant, like if I'm feeling my warm, cozy socks and I'm feeling, you know, this fabric of my sweatshirt and I'm like sensing my temperature, I'm also going to be very, very cued into my sexual organs and what feels good from just a body. Like I can actually experience sexual pleasure alone. I can experience it in a social encounter. I can experience it in a sexual one-to-one. It's just I'm so connected to all of the comfort and pleasure zones in my body that we often say the self-preservation people can be more sexual than the sexual dominant people. Hmm. And similarly, the social people tend to have so many connections with other humans that if they're sexual blind... They may be just out there connecting with so many humans and their body feels good to them that they're like, they might have a lot of casual sexual encounters as well because there's not that energy that's driving you towards the one mate. Mm -hmm. Because when we think about it in the wild, like I'm thinking about these seals and I've seen a video where like this one male seal has this harem of like female seals. And this other male like comes up to try to compete. I think Julie showed us this in our shift class. And literally like these two male seals will like, one of them will die basically or be mortally wounded and just drag himself away. Because even though there's a harem of female seals here, it's like, these are mine and you don't get any of them. Like my sexual stamp and possessiveness is like, I will not share with you no matter what. Mm -hmm. I'll kill you before I let you share. And when we see some humans and how they engage with jealousy, there's that energy inside of them around jealousy. We definitely see that. Yeah. And it's interesting that that with the polyamorous people, they don't have that communication. The jealousy could happen there too. But it's, it's interesting to think about... Uh, the whole jealous aspect in polyamorous relationships. It's so interesting because we can be jealous for social reasons or sexual reasons. There's actually two buckets in which jealousy can be activated. We can even be act jealous for self-pres reasons. Like if you're mm-hmm. giving me your resources and now you're going to share your resources with somebody else, meaning I'm not going to get as much of your resource, I can also get jealous. So across all three domains. So I think for anybody listening that how we think about our jealousy and what activates our jealousy can give us a lot of information about our instinctual stack. Mm. I have to admit, I do read some, they're they're technically kinky romance books. And there's one particular book series that focuses on a trio of people. And this author does a really good job about really looking at the different parts of that trio's relationship. And even when one person is just watching, they get turned on by by the watching. Yeah. 
instead of feeling jealous by it, they get turned on by it. Yeah. Super common. I mean, this is why I think porn is a turn on for some people. It's a way to watch other people having sex, but you're not actually in the mix with it. And I would think if you were sexual dominant, you're removed from, like, if you're just watching, you're not actually in it. I'm thinking that that would be a little less satisfying. Because when I think about men who use porn, usually they use it to masturbate often. Maybe women too. I know less about female I, porn I, usage. I, yeah, you use it for the same I reason. Yeah. I am, I'm, I'm part of the female. Okay. So like, you use it. Yeah. So <laughs> what I'm thinking about is when people use, and I use porn only with partners. So if my partner enjoys porn, I'll watch porn together and get inspired by it. Yeah, exactly. And like, literally, this is a perfect example of me coming from the point three structure where what's happening for me when we're watching porn is I'm tracking what is this guy looking at that he's liking? And now I'm going to do that. And I get turned on by the appreciation and engagement, like the gaze of my partner. So if my partner is pleased with me sexually, this is why threes are often good lovers because we're performing all the time. Like we're natural performers out in the world as well as the bedroom. So like porn gives you something that you can model off of because we don't actually know who we are or what we want or what we like. And we kind of need to see it out there, try it on and then be like, oh yes, I like that. Or I don't like that. So it's almost another way to get ideas. Yeah. And it just shows that there is a place for it in an appropriate way. Oh yeah. But I think that it's actually more a problem in the social instinctual zone than it is with porn. Mm -hmm. People aren't having actual encounters with other live humans. And that's where I think things start to break down as opposed to porn being an accelerant or something additive to the relationship that you're having with someone else. Like most people complain about porn. My husband's a porn addict because he's on the computer masturbating instead of being with me in the bedroom. So that's the problem. Yeah. 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 That's the problem. Indeed. I have to agree. And then you have to say, well, what is it about that person where the actual sexual one-to-one or the social connection is not online? Because really watching porn on a computer is mostly a self-preservation activity. It's self-soothing. Like when we think about it, we talk about how people who have a distortion in the self-preservation instinct will sometimes self-sued with food. Or when we talk about the self-pres nine, we talk about how they might numb out with, you know, television or alcohol or, you know, whatever behavior kind of numbs us out of our direct experience of the body. Mm -hmm. And I think that porn is just yet a different, when we're talking about porn addiction, people are using porn to numb out from engagement with life. And then it's a problem. Just like anything is a problem if you're using it to numb out from actual engagement with life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you letting me have this opportunity to just kind of bounce off you these ideas because not everybody is so open and willing to talk about their own experience of sexuality and their instinctual stack and how these things show up for them. 
And I think that it's really interesting to have these conversations, recognizing that we all experience our sexuality and our relationships in different ways. And when somebody is like, oh, this is the right way to do it or the wrong way to do it, that's where I think people really get missed. And why am I even saying it's right or wrong? This is a way of doing it. Yeah. It's not right or wrong. It's just a way. And that is a way that works for you. And that's what really matters. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting. This is why I think we have people coming out with different views around gender. Because why do I have to be a female or a male? Maybe there's another way that I'm expressing my gender. Just like there's another way I'm expressing my sexuality. And we live in a time where people are just trying on so many different types of expression. And what's most interesting is that if you're being very triggered by somebody else's choice of expression, what underlying fear is being touched on inside of you is what I think is really interesting. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Sarah, thank you so much. I really appreciate the way that you've stepped up with so much vulnerability today and are willing to talk about these very edgy subjects, because as a physician, I've been hearing people have issues in their sexual instinctual zone for so many years now. And of course, personally, as a sexual blind individual, I've had to do a lot of work with really trying to dial in and get a lot more honest with myself, both as a three and a sexual blind person. And there's this whole new appreciation for sexual instinctual energy that I've been touching into that I realize I really have been blind to for so much of my life. And my training in resonant healing and focusing on the sexuality circuit and what's gone on there and how do we heal blockages so that we can bring this very powerful intuitive structure more online as well as recognize when it might be leading us astray because it's neurotic or it's being overly expressed. So I just want to um, really express gratitude for opening up this conversation. And I know that we're both going to continue to explore these ideas that we've opened up today. And I look forward to having you on for a future episode. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and various Android platforms. If you leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, it helps a lot. If you have any questions you'd like addressed in a future episode, please email me at contact at enneagramblindspots.com. I also offer a wide variety of services at my practice while SNSMD, including typing services, Enneagram coaching, nonviolent communication training, and mindfulness trainings for working with stress, anxiety, and food cravings. Feel free to call my office at 847-850-8185 to schedule a free consultation.